Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. So welcome to this new edition of, uh, of the FEPS uh, Talks uh, podcast. Just a few days uh, ahead of uh, International Women's Day, we are particularly delighted to be recording uh, this podcast together with a, a member of the European Parliament, Evin Insir, with whom we are going to discuss more specifically what the European Union has been doing uh, in the domain of gender equality and particularly also in light of the recent files uh, that have been discussed uh, uh, and uh, legislated upon by the European Union. As we know, uh, gender equality between women and men is one of the fundamental principles of the European Union. It goes back to 1957 uh, when the principle uh, of equal pay for work of equal value became part of the Treaty of Rome. But over the past decades, the European Union has notably worked for equal pay legislation, gender mainstreaming and specific measures for the advancements uh, of uh, uh, women's rights, particularly in the domain of gender-based violence. And that is precisely why I'm so delighted uh, to be joined uh, by, uh, by Evin today. Evin is a Swedish uh, politician of uh, Kurdish descent uh, for the Swedish so- Social Democratic Party. And she was voted into the parliament in 2019. So she was born in Turkey and she has been serving on the Committee of Civil uh, Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs since 2019. And in, in addition to her committee assignments, uh, she's also been part of the parliament's delegation to the EU-Turkey Joint Parliamentary uh, Service Committee. On top of this, uh, she's a member of the parliament's anti-racism and diversity intergroup, uh, the European Parliament uh, intergroup on LGBTI rights and the intergroup on trade unions and uh, uh, the one on Western Sahara. So amongst this very long list, there are also two other elements that are important to mention, is that uh, in December 2020, she received the Best Newcomer Award uh, by the European Parliament uh, Magazine's uh, annual MEP award. More recently, in June 2022, she won the award for diversity, inclusion and social impact, uh, again by the Parliament's Magazine annual MEP award. Uh, so for all these reasons, uh, I'm particularly happy to welcome you with us today. So thank you, first of all, for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, especially also to this uh, very important discussion. Uh, now that I've actually introduced you uh, in a very formal way, I also wanted to perhaps let our uh, listeners know you a bit more informally. Uh, and that's why I would like to start by asking you, how did you actually or when was the moment that you realized you were a feminist? Oh, I think I have always had carried that with me since I was a child. So I cannot remember exactly what time or what age I was at, but I always felt that I want to be a part of change. And I always felt that women and girls, or uh, at that time, I would say boys and girls were treated uh, differently. Yeah, when I was a child, I felt that. And since then, my engagement in different ways has uh, taken place. And I was 14, 15 when I took the um, step into politics uh, in my youth movement at home. Maybe during those times, the uh, label of feminist became more clear for me, but I have always been um, struggling for equality and feminism in practice also before I even knew what feminism meant. Well, precisely of uh, speaking about knowing what feminism means, uh, it seems that also the past year, the European Union is taking the notion rather seriously, particularly since uh, the entry into office of, uh, of the last uh, Commission legislature in 2019, uh, which is also precisely when you entered uh, uh, into the parliament and 
became also one of the parliaments with the highest female uh, MEP representatives. And that's also precisely when equality made it back on the political agenda with also strong support by the European Commissioner, uh, most uh, definitely through the appointment of uh, Helena Daly as the Commissioner for Equality, who also published uh, the Gender Equality Strategy in 2020. Uh, However, since then, a lot has happened. We have seen uh, a pandemic. We have seen uh, the situation uh, that uh, has particularly affected women being employed in the most affected sectors, being particularly burdened by care inequalities, but also on the international level with the situation of uh, women uh, in Afghanistan, in Iran, which is also will be some points uh, that we will come back to. Uh, But generally speaking, when we look at the EU agenda in this regard, would you say that the EU, since uh, the introduction of its strategy, has been at the height of its expectation when it comes to to its uh, uh, equality agenda? I think when uh, it comes to the both adoption of the gender equality strategy, um, the latest one in 2020, and also the uh, gender action plan, and gender action plan is related to uh, more foreign policy, while the gender equality strategy is internal within the EU. It is, of course, sending a very clear sign to women and girls all across European Union that they do matter and that we will not accept that women and girls continue being second-class citizens of our union. And I have seen uh, more and more important steps being taken during this mandate uh, until now. But of course, we need to go from words to actions. Uh, We have uh, had uh, many proposals and we have many proposals on the table right now. One of them is the directive on combating violence against women and domestic violence. But yeah, once again, we need to go from words to action and ensure that the the proposals are being adopted and also the member states are in reality also um, uh, implementing them. Yes, indeed, precisely. Uh, The past years have actually been quite uh, crucial for equality as we have seen a lot of uh, relevant files uh, being adopted and also measures uh, finally becoming Mm. concrete, especially in the past years. Just in the past years, for instance, we've seen uh, in August 2022, member states reaching the deadline for implementing the work-life balance directive. In June of the same year, uh, we have seen the adoption of the adequate minimum wages, uh, which is also an important tool for reducing the gender gaps in pay and in worker poverty, especially if we consider that women make up uh, more than 60% of minimum wage earners. In June, again, the European Parliament and the Council reached an agreement on a proposed directive aimed at improving gender balance on corporate boards in EU uh, larger list companies. And as you mentioned, uh, we've also seen now significant steps uh, forward when it comes to the directive uh, on uh, combating uh, gender-based violence. Some of these files have actually been blocked for years, if not decades. So what would you say is uh, different in, uh, in today's context? I would say that uh, there are many proposals put on the table and that shows that there is a will to ensure that we uh, we um, see a positive uh, development rather than things being blocked. However, um, these proposals have not come by itself. It is, as you mentioned, I mean, 2019 was the year or the mandate uh, with the highest amount of women in the parliament. And this force, I hope, uh, will be continuing also for next mandate. 
uh, to ensure that we go from words uh, to actions. But we should also be very, I think, uh, very honest with saying that this struggle is not easy because we have far-right movements, we have anti-feminist movements and parties within this parliament that are doing everything that they can do to ensure that the legislations and uh, policies are not being adopted. So we have uh, some forces here that makes uh, the struggle uh, even harder. But I am optimistic uh, because uh, I see that there is still a will for adoption and the implementation of uh, the proposals. Um, so, yeah, I would say the will is uh, the strongest indication of uh, why I look more positive uh, into the future. And actually, just at the mid of uh, February, uh, so uh, on the 15th of February, members of the European Parliament uh, voted on a, on a measure to push EU countries to ratify this uh, Council of Europe's uh, Istanbul Convention in line uh, with, the, with the European Court of Justice uh, ruling. And you've been yourself speaking up uh, very vocally uh, on this uh, uh, issue, highlighting that uh, the Istanbul Convention is the most uh, important regional uh, legislation to combat violence against women mm. and domestic violence. Uh, what makes this tool uh, so important? and also uh, when it comes to its uh, uh, binding nature? It makes it important because it is binding. Uh, it is to ensure that all 27 member states are taking their responsibility because we know that today, for example, we have six EU member states that have refused to ratify the Istanbul Convention. Uh, and that is, the Istanbul Convention is the regionally binding uh, legislation to combat this heinous violence that have existed in, for, for decades, for centuries, and that still exists in 2023. But, uh, and I'm happy that it was adopted uh, last week with a broad majority. However, I am a bit worried though how uh, it will end up in uh, the council because one hand, I'm happy that it seems and I'm, it seems that it might be um, uh, adopted with a qualified majority in one of the upcoming council meetings. On the other hand, as I understand, the issue then would be to ratify those parts that is an EU competence, which means that a lot of the parts within the Istanbul Convention actually concerns national competence. Those parts will not be included in the ratification of uh, the, uh, the Council decision as it looks like right now. So I'm positive, um, but I'm also a bit worried that it would only concern the EU competence part, which is quite limited. Um, but we from the side of the European Parliament, especially from the side of the progressives, of course, the SND group we will be continue fighting for the EU to ratify it, as well as to uh, continue fighting for all the member states to ratify the Istanbul Convention. Perhaps uh, on, a, on this level, precisely knowing that the Istanbul Convention being a Council of Europe uh, document that has been uh, ratified uh, and signed both by individual member states and now there are these uh, pushes uh, for the European Union to do so itself. Mm -hmm. What is actually the main uh, difference for uh, doing so at EU level and at national level? It depends on, I mean, if uh, the EU and EU ratifies it, if it can includes the whole convention or only some parts of the convention. While when uh, when doing it on a national level, of course, it uh, it concerns the whole convention, uh, which means that uh, the uh, national um, parliaments uh, and the legislators will need to incorporate it into the national laws. So, uh, yeah, I think the best way forward would be both national ratification and an EU ratification to be sure that everybody is taking are taking their responsibility of the implementation. And uh, what have been some of the key demands made uh, by uh, MEPs in the text that was adopted in the plenary just last week? I mean, the biggest demand is 
is the ratification and to ensure that uh, we have legislations on place because today we have a lack of um, strong uh, and sufficient legislation in place to ensure to combat all kind of uh, gender-based violence. It could be economic, it could be physical, it could be psychological and so on and so forth. So the most important part of the decision last week was to push, continue pushing for the ratification. And the parliament have made its voice loud years after years. But right now, it seems like actually that there might be a certain light in the tunnel for some kind of a ratification. In fact, what's also interesting to see uh, is that the text makes also key uh, demands uh, in other areas, especially when it comes to access to sexual health and reproductive rights, to age-appropriate uh, uh, sex education, family planning and services. So what's also good and positive to see is that it also takes a very holistic uh, approach to the issue of uh, gender-based violence. And that is more, even more relevant uh, if we consider that roughly 62 million women have actually experienced uh, physical and sexual violence in Europe, mm-hmm. according to European Parliament data. And additionally, 44% of women have experienced psychological violence from a partner in her lifetime, according to FRA, the Fundamental uh, Rights uh, Agency. What is more, more than half of uh, women in the European Union, so 55% have experienced sexual harassment at least since the age of 15. Uh, So these are all the more reasons Mm. for the EU to take serious action in the domain. And this one more domain on which you have also been very vocal is in ensuring that uh, Article 83 of uh, the Treaty of the Functioning of, of the European Union is modified so that it also includes gender-based violence as a euro crime. Could you perhaps also elaborate a little bit on that? Absolutely. But first, I just also wanted to add that we have the figures on that um, at least um, 50 women per week in Europe are being killed in domestic violence. That means at least 2,600 women all across Europe are being deprived their lives because of domestic violence. So women are being faced with violence and many times also violence that leads to death. So it is a very important um, struggle and important and in that way also important to have policies in place. One of them was, as you mentioned, a demand from from the European Parliament of uh, the autumn of um, 2021, uh, we adopted a report on including uh, gender-based violence as an EU crime. But unfortunately, that would require a unanimity in the Council. So the the response of the Commission to our demand was to put forward this directive on um, combating violence against women and uh, domestic violence. And the directive is, of course, very good step forward, but we in the parliament would even want to go further. And of course, we will be continue working uh, on the directive. I am myself one of the two co-rapporteurs, but we will not put aside our continued demand uh, to uh, try to include uh, um, gender-based violence as an EU crime uh, to ensure that it is a crime all across the European Union and nothing, no discussion about if or when, but that it should be that. However, that's uh, unfortunately a um, struggle that uh, will will take longer time. But right now we are very eagerly and uh, hardly working on uh, the directive. 
And uh, unfortunately, issues uh, related to gender-based violence are not unique to uh, the European Union. In fact, uh, there is, uh, uh, especially uh, when it comes to uh, the situation of uh, women in Iran, uh, we have mm. been uh, particularly concerned. Uh, and the SND itself has made several calls to the European Union to actually sanction uh, Iranian uh, officials, including those associated with the, uh, the mor morality police, uh, who also found uh, very much complicit uh, or responsible uh, for the death of uh, Yina Masa Amini. And also also the, the killings of uh, pro protesters against the uh, mass violations of uh, women in Iran. Yourself, you were actually the, uh, the SND negotiator uh, on the European Parliament's uh, resolution on this case. Uh, so would you be able to, to tell us uh, a little bit more about that? Yeah, to combat the gender-based violence, we need to do it within the European Union and we also need to do it globally. And we know, of course, they are interlinked because also when we see a deterioration in one place, we see actually a deterioration in other places also. And we see that the, it's the same kind of a patriarchal system that uh, leads to uh, this kind of, this different kind of uh, violences all across uh, the world. So um, that's why I'm glad that we in the European Union have the gender equality strategy as well as we have the uh, gender uh, action plan three uh, in place to ensure that we take our commitment for women and girls seriously all across the, all across the world. And in Iran, we know um, since over 40 years, um, women and girls have been treated, I wanted to say the se second class uh, citizens, but even third or fourth cla uh, class citizens. Um, uh, women have been deprived to access all parts of society and they are being seen in Iran as uh, the um, property of men. Um, and women and girls have had enough since many, many decades, uh, many, many years back uh, within the country. And with this revolution, they all showed that the strength within is strong and our duty as uh, in the, within the European Union is, of course, to support all the women and girls and allies within Iran to ensure that um, this heinous regime uh, in Tehran is uh, crawling back to under the stone that it came from. Um, and uh, we have done it at least uh, two times the last months within uh, the European Parliament through adopting two resolutions. The latest one, uh, as you mentioned, I myself negotiated on behalf of the S&D group, but I also uh, had the honor to uh, um, lead the negotiations within the party political groups. And we had a unanimity on their resolution, which is important to that um, which was important to send a strong um, signal a message uh, to the uh, horrific uh, regime in uh, Tehran that we will never ever accept uh, their uh, their behavior in this regard also what what would you say is the importance of uh, uh, gender mainstreaming foreign affairs for instance uh, there's much talk lately of uh, feminist foreign policy for instance uh, mm -hmm. and you are yourself also a very active uh, MEP uh, when it comes to international affairs uh, being also part of uh, the different uh, being also a member of uh, the delegation with relations for Iran but also Turkey uh, and the substitute on the Committee of Foreign Affairs. So I, how do you think uh, uh, the European Union can also enhance its uh, role through the committees, but also the political groups in advancing the gender perspective in a main gender mainstreamed uh, manner? I think uh, gender mainstreaming is important as well as um, direct support on uh, two policies and actions. So we need to do both of them. Um, but we actually, in the latest report on uh, the uh, gender action plan, and managed to adopt 
uh, wordings and decisions on uh, that EU should declare its foreign and uh, development policies as uh, feminist um, foreign and development policies. That was very important step, I would say, for us. And we will be continuing demanding a feminist and uh, development uh, policies to ensure that uh, women and girls are not being left aside also in our foreign policies and that the interest of um, all the people all across the, uh, the world is important, not only some people in some part of uh, the world. And women and girls are containing of uh, the half of the populations uh, across the world. So, uh, and unfortunately, we have had for a long time policies uh, that has been neglecting women and girls. So, yeah, the feminist foreign policy, it is, it would be a huge victory um, if uh, the EU could declare it uh, as such. And then, of course, um, within that, gender mainstreaming and direct support on uh, different policies and um, uh, actions are concrete um, steps uh, of the of a true feminist policy. And uh, perhaps also, if I may ask you, also being a, a female policymaker yourself, also in relation to perhaps uh, some of the challenges uh, that women uh, face uh, specifically, we've also heard uh, a lot of talks uh, lately uh, with the uh, recent resignation uh, of uh, Jacinta Arden. Then more recently, also the same uh, happened to uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, do you also identify a gender factor here uh, and what is your reading uh, uh, of that? No, I mean, policy and representation, they need to go hand in hand because, I mean, I remember when I was very young, my view of uh, politics was middle-aged white men. And that was uh, a factor that doesn't really lead to me being attracted to politics. But I was lucky in other ways and uh, through uh, uh, other possibilities, I found my way into politics. But for politics... To be accessible for everybody, we also need to be able to see ourselves in our representatives. So uh, Yacinda, for example, have been very important for, um, and not only as a person, she, her policies has also been very important for uh, women and girls within New Zealand and has inspired women and girls um, uh, outside uh, New Zealand. So it is, I would say, uh, it is sad to see uh, that some of uh, strong prime ministers and heads of states uh, that are women are leaving or uh, have uh, been forced to leave because of different reasons. I mean, we also in Sweden had Magdalena Andersson as a uh, prime minister until the last elections. And she was also inspiring and still, of course, as a party leader, even though in opposition, uh, women and uh, girls across Sweden and Europe to feel that their voice matters and uh, that they as human beings, they as the women uh, and girls uh, matters. So um, they have contributed to a lot of uh, both um, feeling of uh, that we are equal to men and boys as well as, as progressives pushing for policies that leads to more equality. And uh, as we are also starting to look at uh, very important uh, elections for the European Union uh, coming up uh, in 2024, what would you say will be the main uh, challenges uh, in tackling uh, gender equality in the European Union? Well, the, main, the biggest challenges are the far right and the conservative side that is more and more, or traditional conservative side that are more and more looking at the national conservatives and the far right and going hand in hand with them. So that would be the biggest challenges to uh, ensure that we have 
have um, legislators that actually are taking the situation that women and girls are in seriously and want to do something against it. And the same forces, the far right, the populist forces are the same forces that are climate deniers, for example. That's the same forces that attacks immigrants. So it is quite a lot uh, at stake, uh, the upcoming uh, European um, Parliament um, uh, elections in summer 2024. And in light of this context, uh, especially uh, for progressive actors who also want to actually make a significant contribution to, uh, to gender equality, what are the main domains that actually still give you hope and that you want to be focusing on uh, in order to actually make uh, a significant change uh, for women's rights? I mean, the main hope is, uh, of course, people power that we together organized can make change. But that demands that we are many and that push for the same uh, direction, for a direction of a society, a feministic society where women and girls are equal to uh, boys and men. So um, through organizing, I'm sure that we will both win elections and we will together ensure to push through policies that ensures all all our equality. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Evin. I hope uh, this leaves us all le- leaves us all with a very uh, inspiring note and also the will to continue fighting for for gender equality. So thanks a lot for being with us today. Thank you very much. And uh, perhaps, if I may, uh, I would just close this podcast with actually a quote by a very inspiring uh, feminist author. Her name is Bell Hooks, and she's an acclaimed feminist uh, author, but also poet. And she wrote uh, this. Simply put. Feminism is a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation and oppression. This was the definition of feminism I offered in feminist theory from margin to center more than 10 years ago. It was my hope at the time that it would become a common definition everyone would use. I like this definition because it did not simply imply uh, that men were the enemy. By naming sexism as the problem, it went directly to the heart of the matter. Practically, it is a definition which implies that all sexist thinking and action is the problem, whether those who perpetuate it are female or male, child or adult. It is also broad enough to include an understanding of systemic institutionalized sexism. As a definition, it is open-ended. To understand feminism, it implies one has to necessarily understand sexism. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>